I've always had my own businesses. I say that I'm unemployable for many different reasons, mostly because I'm just sassy as hell. Um, and I just don't do well with the hierarchy of bosses and whatever. I think my ideas are better. <laughs> so I've um, always just created my own money or ways to get money. I blame my stepfather who told me when I was 12, he said, you know, money is the easiest thing in the world to get. And I know that that statement is riddled in privilege, but I swear it's not coming from that place. (laughs) It was him saying that you have a brain, you have an imagination, use it for good and to nourish yourself and sustain yourself. And that's kind of what I've always done. I've just, I'm just a hustler. Entrepreneur is a I don't like, I, I don't even know how to balance a checkbook. I don't know if I want to call myself. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not good that way. <laughs> Rebecca Baruki is a force. She's an author, a mother of five, a business owner, meditation guide, and a lover of all things joy. Most recently, she started a publishing house, which you'll hear about today. Welcome to The Safe Haven. I'm your host, Amanda Lytle. The Safe Haven offers a collection of conversations about life's challenges and the pivots we make in order to keep moving forward. Rebecca started her entrepreneurial journey, which she references as just being a woman on her hustle, selling veggies to a local deli at eight years old. She works as an activist and an advocate, and as a lover of people, Rebecca leads with her heart. Rebecca has had many significant life pivots, which she explains today were pivots that she was forced into. She's taken these lessons and propelled herself forward into leadership roles, but leadership roles that respect and understand the importance of communication and teamwork, dividing roles and appreciating collective successes. In the conversation today, we discuss some of these pivots and lessons, along with her new publishing house, which I'm so excited for you to hear about, her appreciation for small businesses and how small business values tie into her goals to go big. Rebecca shares her appreciation of black culture and black food and how it's so important to focus on black joy. We start the conversation today, jumping back in to the question that I posed earlier in the pre-recording about life pivots. We talked about this a little bit when we started recording and I, and I rattled off some answers like leaving an abusive marriage and deciding to take a career online because I had to take care of these three little children. But really, you know, in examining this right in this moment, most of my pivots were forced situations because it wasn't that I wanted to leave this marriage. It was that my, you know, ex-husband Um, had a gambling addiction and he put us in a situation that there was really no other choice for me than to find safety. And, you know, with, with work, it's always been me finding myself in a situation that felt untenable, unbearable. I would say that the biggest pivot though, in mindset, personal journey and professional journey came in 2013 when I lost both of my parents seven months apart And I was in the hospital with my mother. She suffered a massive stroke when she was on vacation in North Carolina. So we traveled down from New Jersey to be with her those last 10 days of her life. And I was in the hospital basically just canceling contracts and partnerships left and right because I realized at that moment that there was no other choice than to just be with my family and not even have the worry about these obligations. And, and that was a great privilege for me to be able to do that and not 
end up destitute, but it was, there might've been some poor decisions in there that left me in a really bad situation the next year that I had to suffer through. But, you know, it was then, you know, realizing how fragile life is because it was my, my parents that raised me that died seven months apart, but I also lost my ex-mother-in-law. I lost my stepfather who was a part of my life through my whole teen years up until that point in my thirties. My biological father died soon after that. Like I lost a lot of people in a very short amount of time. And I was, you know, I had a kind of effort attitude before, like, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to make my own rules. But that was just like, life is short. It's precious. I've now witnessed people that I love and care about die with dreams inside of them. And that's just not going to be me. So from then on, not that I became fearless, but I carried courage and fear with me at the same time. And started making some really bold decisions that changed my life in amazing ways and proved to me that you can make your own rules and you can do things in a new way and be very successful and be very happy. You know, I have big pivots, but I feel like I'm always pivoting. I feel like, I mean, pivot's such a weird word to me because it just feels like every decision for me feels like it's out of left field. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I love that. I love surprising myself. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh, Rebecca. I didn't realize. I'm so sorry. That is a lot to take on in uh, in seven months. And at that point, you had kids, too. So you have to be your best self for your kids through this grieving. I wasn't my best self for my kids. I had four children at the time. I have five now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll say that I did not grieve. I just started the process of grieving in the past couple of years, you know, Mm -hmm. several years after the fact. And I realized now that I was on this kind of autopilot, desperate trajectory to fix a lot of things that I felt were unfixed, which also, again, like compelled this pivot, these decisions to be made. But yeah, I wasn't my best self. And that's okay, too. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm working through that, too. Yeah, of course. I have a couple questions about your entrepreneurial journey. Sure. Yeah. So where did your entrepreneurial journey start and why? (laughs) I still don't call myself an entrepreneur. I don't even know what that means. Entrepreneur (laughs) to me is like someone who's like standing in front of that Lamborghini trying to like sell someone a lifestyle. (laughs) So I'm I'm just a a woman on her hustle. My entrepreneurial journey, I guess it started when I was eight years old and I was planting vegetables in my backyard and I would sell them to the local deli. And then when I was 11, I mean, I grew up poor. I mean, I'm talking poor and, you know, excuse the visual, but I've poured boxes of cereal and found half cockroaches in my Mm -hmm. cereal. Like we used to have to boil the rice and wait for the little like bugs to come up to the top, like little Mm -hmm. larvae and wipe them off. Like that was my life. I didn't know any different from struggle. So, you know, as soon as I could work, my parents were like, yeah, we're not like buying your clothes anymore. Like that, (laughs) that's not happening. So I would scrub steps for my, like we had all these stoops. I grew up in, um, I grew up in a row house, which are houses that are attached to each other. And it's the name of my publishing company now. But we all had these concrete steps out front and I would take bleach and water solution and scrub people's stoops for 10 bucks a stoop. And that's how I paid for my school clothes and for whatever else I wanted to do. So I've always worked. I've always had my own businesses. I say that I'm unemployable for many different reasons, mostly because I'm just sassy as hell. um, And I just don't do well with the hierarchy of bosses and whatever. I think my ideas are better. (laughs) So I've um, always just created my own money or ways to get money 
I blame my stepfather who told me when I was 12, he said, you know, money is the easiest thing in the world to get. And I know that that statement is riddled in privilege, but I swear it's not coming from that place. Mm. It was him saying that you have a brain, you have an imagination, use it for good and to nourish yourself and sustain yourself. And that's kind of what I've always done. I've just, I'm just a hustler. Entrepreneur is a I don't like, I, I don't even know how to balance a checkbook. I don't know if I want to call myself. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not good that way. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I love to create things and I love to share things with the world. Yes. I want to use, just because you just said row house, I want you to share your latest, let's call it business adventure then. <laughs> Again, a situation that was forced. Mm-hmm. Um, my former publisher, Hay House, um, because you can Google it. I don't need to keep it secret. Uh, They published two of my books. I was writing self-help books for adults. So I have two books, You Have Four Minutes to Change Your Life and Managing the Motherload, which is about my motherhood journey. And I was working with them as an author. They had just picked up my first Zara book. Um, I have a series for children called Zara's Big Messy. So they picked up Zara's Big Messy Day. And I was also a mentor in their Diverse Wisdom Initiative, which was basically a program to recruit and then foster the careers of black and brown authors, like emerging authors, which I was so excited to be a part of. And over the course of several years and and different incidents, um, it became very clear to me that they were not really truly invested in the welfare, the lives, the interests of black and brown folks, other marginalized folks, you know, and over several discussions, you know, it came to a head and, and I had to leave. It just wasn't a place, a community that was safe for my people. I'm a biracial woman. My father's black. My mother's white. I'm very much, you know, entrenched in social justice movements, culture. It's, I've always been an activist. My parents were activists. So it just wasn't a place for me. So in October of 2020, I left The next day, my girlfriend, Kristen, texted me and said, hey, why don't you just create your own Hay House? And jokingly, I said, yeah, let's do it. We'll call it Bay House, like Bay, my boo. And and she thought I was off my rocker, so she didn't respond for a couple days. And finally, she was like, no, for real, I'm serious. I'm like, yeah, I'm serious, too. Let's do this. And within a couple of weeks, we had a business plan. Now we have six authors on our roster. Mm -hmm. We are launching with our first book in January 22. We have raised $200,000 in the last few weeks to build this business. That's a combination of gifts and investors. And we're going to go hard and we are going to create a equitable or we have created an equitable model that has not been seen in publishing that gets our authors paid. Our contracts are transparent and everybody gets treated with the same love, no matter the size of your platform or your popularity. So it's, it's shaking things up. It's shaking things up and I'm very excited. And it's called row house because I grew up in this row house. I grew up in a house that looks very humble and simple and plain from the outside. But I know I experienced that every single one of those houses contained families with stories and histories and good smell and food and Mm -hmm. love. And, you know, that's what I see in our authors. I love it. Congratulations. Thank you. That is so exciting. And October 2020 to now is only a couple of months. This is amazing. Yeah. 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 That's how that's how we do though. Yeah. Okay. So pre-recording, you said something that I, I actually wrote down. Can you elaborate a little bit on not staying small? 
look, I love a small business Mm -hmm. and you know, the technical definition is like under a hundred employees or whatever in revenue. But I think that small businesses have the biggest heart behind them. So I would, I I hate that diminutive, like small word, Mm -hmm. but I will say row house, we are small in the number of people that are involved right now. And that's actually not true because we have over 400 donors that have given their, their treasure to us online. We have an incredible amount of support from industry professionals and finance and publishing. We've been our first week when we did our flood the feed event where we asked our social media friends to share, we got in front of 5.6 million people. So <laughs> we have we have a lot of love out there, but we intend to compete with the biggest publishers, the Simon and Schuster, the Penguin Random House, the Hashtag Books. Like we intend to compete and we have no intention of being small because we do understand in a capitalist society that we must work within for now in a society that's driven by white supremacist ideology that we must have a certain part of the market to be heard. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take it. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the statistics that are behind this? Because I know that for myself included, this was something that I wasn't aware of. I was completely ignorant to, but also hadn't gone searching for, right? So to see that and also kind of be in the process of publishing a chapter, I was more drawn to like the holy shit of the stats that you were sharing. So can you share a couple for us? Um, so a couple just off the top of my head and, and these statistics, there's a there's a wonderful, I want to give props where props are due. There is an incredible children's book publisher, diverse book publisher called Lee and Lowe, L-E-E and Lowe, L-O-W, that um, they do these studies on diversity in publishing and they're just a wonderful resource to support them in their books. But 79% of the entire publishing industry is white. They identify as white. So this is all professionals. This is agents, um, publishers, authors, all that. Of that, 90% of authors are white. So this is not reflective of society at large, definitely. But worldwide, white folks are actually the minority. And they will be the minority in the United States by, I believe, 2040. Um, So this is a problem. It's overwhelmingly cisgender. It's overwhelmingly heterosexual. And what gets really interesting, really, really interesting, is that when you look at books that are featuring Black and Brown characters, they are mostly written by white Mm -hmm. authors, which begs the question, how can these stories actually be authentic? How can they reflect the culture of these characters? And they cannot. So one thing that we're doing at my children's imprint, Wheat Penny Press, and then Row House, which is absorbing Wheat Penny Press, is that we participate in the Own Voices campaign. So basically, like my children's book, Zara's Big Messy Day, um, it features a little girl. She is biracial. She has a black parent and a white parent. That is my story so I can tell it. And, you know, there's pushback from authors who say, well, I'm writing fiction. I can write about anyone. Yes. And, and for too long, the stories have only been told from one perspective and we really do need to shift the balance. So when I'm talking about statistics, I'm not trying to even be reflective of society. I want more books by black and brown people. I want more books by queer people because we've been reading and absorbing whiteness forever. Mm -hmm. So let's swing that pendulum in the other direction and actually learn something from the people who've lived it. Mm -hmm. The statistics are scary. The statistics are really like they're wrong and they're not doing us justice Mm -hmm. um, at all because, you know, even as, you know, white folks, 
you all aren't, you aren't getting a real representation of other cultures, of people that look and live differently than you. That lack of knowledge blocks you from accessing your empathy and your humanity towards these people. Mm-hmm. So want to really grow. So you should be hearing from, you know, the people that actually have the lived experience. And and we've seen this over um, the course of the past year, you know, especially since the murder of George Floyd by police. And we um, saw this, this, this worldwide uprising, really, you know, cities all across America, certainly that, or the United States, I'll say, because America is bigger than the United States. (laughs) So the United States, that it's a real tragedy that the only time that the culture at large is interested in the stories of black and brown folks it's when they're talking about their pain or their oppression or their struggle and so you see and and my friends included you know Layla Saad and Rachel Ricketts you see their books on the New York Times bestseller list but they're talking about the struggle they're talking about the pain I want to see the books written by black and brown folks that, that are about romance and joy and science fiction and the, all the different, you know, genres of the academics and, and children's books and all of that. But again, we're focusing on this struggle, this pain, and the consumption is still rooted in white supremacy and the, oh, poor these people. And this is, it becomes, you know, there's a word trauma porn, which I don't really love, but it becomes this kind of other, like, you know, watching a train wreck instead of really experiencing the, the fullness and the wholeness of who, who people are. You know, Black people don't just sit around and talk about racism all day. There are other things. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, food, which I would love to talk about if we have time. Let's do it. Great segue. Let's chat about food. Well, I'll talk about food and then I'll bring it back to Row House. Okay. Um, <laughs> now it's springtime and we're, we're going to cookouts. I'm so excited about food lately because I'm just thinking about barbecue and being outside. Mm. And one of the things we did with Row House is uh, with our, we call them our founding patrons. We invited people to come to a virtual block party. And all it is, is that we have named the different levels of giving. So for instance, if you give a thousand dollars, you are front and line, you're in the front of the line at the buffet. Like you get to move to the front. There is no buffet, but whatever. Uh, $2,500 is the planning committee. $5,000 is the uh, block party president. And it's really not a, like someone complained that it's like a hierarchy and it really isn't because we have a, a public list of everyone who's given and you don't know what they've given, whether they've given a mm. dollar and we've gotten a dollar up to $20,000 and we've gotten that too. Mm-hmm. But the, this culture, like we really want to create this culture of joy, of getting together, being in community, partying together, celebrating together. And if I can host a real live Black Party barbecue for Row House, maybe the summer of 2022, I'm going to do that. There will be some ribs and some macaroni and cheese. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to the vegetarians and vegans. We will have options for you as well. I promise. <laughs> I promise. I loved what you said earlier about Row House Pub and just that, you know, you have these Little houses, they they are cute and they don't look like much, but there's so much going on behind those doors and walls. And you yeah. mentioned food earlier, actually, in the conversation. So tell me a little bit about how food has become so much a part of your life. Oh my God. 
I mean, I wake up thinking about food. I go to bed <laughs> sometimes eating food. I love food. Um, food is culture. And this, and this is one of the beautiful things, you know, for me. And, you know, I talked about losing my parents. Food is a way to connect with um, other people that I don't know. They're still my family, but my family from afar, but also to connect to my roots. One of my favorite meals is pork chops and beans. It's mm. just kidney beans and pork chops just baked with like bacon and all. It's like pork on pork on pork. My I, I swear my mother never made us anything healthy, but it also tasted very good. So I don't care. But when I'm really in my feelings, my husband will make me pork chops and beans. Oh. And I sit with that and that's just like, it's like just being with my mom again, mm-hmm. or there's a, there's a section of my book, you have four minutes to change your life where I'm talking about food, like emotional eating being something that can be very beautiful too. And sitting down with a piece of Jewish apple cake, which was something that my mother made all the time. And just like eating the food and, and remembering the smell of a baking in her house and like her popping by with a piece of cake when I used to live a couple blocks away from her. And it's just, I mean, food for me is love. I don't cook, which is funny. It's ironic. My husband does all the cooking. I don't, I don't even make my own tea. It's a problem. I actually saw that in the live that you did this morning that you were just like, just sitting here waiting for my tea. And you kind of reached out. Yeah. God bless him. I'll tell you, we've been together for, I think it's 15 years or 16 years this summer. I'm very bad at this. I think 15 years we've been together. I love him. We are together 24 hours a day, especially since COVID, but we both work from home. He's a, like a celebrity portrait photographer and you know, with COVID he's not traveling and we were always together anyway. Uh, There's just like nobody I'd rather hang out with. He's just such a fun, cool person. And I think the secret to our love and success is that we have these very defined, I'm not giving out marriage advice, by the way. (laughs) I don't give out parenting advice or marriage marriage advice. I'm just like, this is what works for me. But we have these very clearly defined roles in our relationship. Not that like someone can't step in. Like, I mean, I won't cook. When he travels for work, he actually makes us casseroles and like puts it in. Amazing. Because he'll know I'll I'll order like a hundred pizza and he's like, please don't do that, Rebecca. But you know, like we have our jobs and they aren't defined by gender lines. They, they're clearly like, who likes to do this? Who's willing to do this? And who has the time for it? And because of the intensity of my work and how I'm really so much more on a schedule, like doing podcasts and coaching or whatever, he does like the house stuff. I don't let him touch my laundry, (laughs) but he does the house stuff. And it just, there's never a fight over who's going to do what ever. Like kids are dirty and he's like, all right, they're going to get a bath. I'm going to go give them a bath. <laughs> or he's like, bills need to be paid. And I'm like, all right, I'll go figure that out. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just easy. Mm-hmm. So we, we fight, but not about who's doing what. Yeah. That's such a great point to make though, too, is that if you're dividing roles by who likes to do what or has the time and energy to do what, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's real. And, and I'll say this too. It's kind of the way, you know, getting back to business, it's the way I operate in all areas, you know, even with Row House, like I'm the president of Row House, but I did a live this morning with Trudy LeBron, who is a genius businesswoman and one of our authors. Uh, we were talking about the, 
you know, even though, again, I'm the president of Row House, I, it was so important for me to create a team of people that would hold me accountable and would help me to make decisions because I'm not good at everything. So we have this publishing council of four of our authors who all have a vested interest in the business. They've been given equity in exchange for their time and their wisdom. Um, they are not financial buying. You can't buy into a voting spot of Row House. And we made, like we tell our investors, like, you don't get a vote but thank you for your money. We will give you financial return. And I know what I'm good at. I know what I want to do. I know what other people are good at. And, and I ask them, what are you willing to do? And that's how we get things done. And we're not stepping on each other's toes. We have very clearly defined roles that are interdependent and we rely on each other and we support each other and we check each other. It's, it's just a really beautiful way to live, like not having to do everything which is really interesting, like not to bring up Rachel Hollis, but to bring up Rachel Hollis. <laughs> one of the things that she said, you know, if you're not familiar, just Google the situation. But she um, was talking about how she got to this, you know, the top of a mountain and she's ha- achieved all the success and she's worked very hard. And, you know, there's that saying, it's lonely at the top. Why would you want that? Like, I don't want to be on top of a mountain. I want to be sitting at a table with a bunch of cool people and collaborating and um, building something beautiful together and, and, you know, taking that walk together. So, um, yeah. And I do it with my kids too. Like everything's a conversation. Everything's a conversation. I'm not the boss of the house. Like I don't pull that because I'm the mom. It's, you know, we really like what's reasonable here. What's good for everybody. What's good for the sake of, you know, all 142 people that live in this house. (laughs) (laughs) Communication is so important. And it sounds so cliche, like everywhere It's like communication is key, but it is, it is so important in every aspect of your life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because we have feeling and thought. Yeah. And if we're not expressing them and also hearing other people's like, how do we even interact? I mean, interact in a way that's healthy. I guess there's a lot of unhealthy interaction going on. Yeah, great point. Is like communication is key. It's like healthy and constructive communication is key. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, when there is discord in the house, when or, you know, unhealthy discord and people are not uh, feeling good, it always comes from either someone feeling like they're not being heard or someone not listening it always stems from that. And when we sit down and we have the conversation, it's not like everything's always happy here. Like I said, like we argue, we get into it, we act selfishly, but when we sit down and we examine it, you know, things tend to, to work themselves out because everyone here loves each other and we all want what's best for each other. Mm-hmm. And as a society at large, if we could recognize that we need each other and we should be there for each other and we appreciate each other and we want to grow together, then we wouldn't have these issues. But again, I hate to say, but I also love to say white supremacy because we don't say it enough. You know, we talk about racism, which is a very cute word, but it's really about white supremacy. Mm-hmm. White supremacy teaches us that we are meant to, or we should strive to live on our own, to be individuals, to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, to get a mortgage and buy a house and kick our kids out when they're 18 and make our parents live by themselves and they're old and put them at home and put a fence around it. And like no judgment if that's what works for your family. But what I've found is that people are so disconnected from each other that we've forgotten how to even, you know, be. So uh, we can reject that and say that we need each other. And that's actually a good, healthy thing. Mm-hmm. I'm on a, I'm on a rant today because I'll tell you that Rachel Hollis did F me up over the weekend 
we're recording this like right after. Like, I'll just tell you, we're recording this after a, a woman named Rachel Hollis made herself the poster child of white feminism, made herself the poster child of, you know, white supremacy in the entrepreneurial coaching world. Like we didn't do this to her. She outed herself. And as angry as it made me. And then also the comedy that was involved with her lack of self-awareness, there was also a lot of hurt. And, you know, I'm starting to feel that now in the wake of that, like after like really processing it and going, wow, 1.7 million people follow her and buy her books and buy into this really harmful, harmful ideology that hurts people that I love, you know? So it's just been yeah. So I'm going to rant on this a lot. I'm going to be talking, not rant. I'm going to speak on this a lot mm-hmm. because I think that uh, we don't acknowledge how much we, we swim in the waters of white supremacy and how it does infiltrate every single area of our lives, be it our personal relationships, how we rear our children, how we vote, all of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I followed that along quite closely and I was same thing, just like shaking my head. What do you feel when you see that? I cringe. I feel this sense of collective embarrassment, I think, amongst other people that tend to be the ones that are actively, quietly doing the work and trying to educate ourselves and have these tough conversations and make mistakes, but leading with love and intention. And so you see something like that and, oh, I like halfway through, I was just like, stop, like, what are you doing? Stop, stop, stop. Like, she did she not make this massive mistake a couple months ago and like tried to apologize and I'm going to do the work and I'm going to be more aware of this and blah 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 well talk about hurt as well is then I recognized that she'd actually thrown her team under the bus with a post that she made as well about going with her gut and things like that I'm like that's also pathological behavior she does that she's done that but she just keeps revealing who she is and I would say and this is not by any means a way of letting her off the hook and again she is not the problem she is a symptom of the problem shares characteristics front with you know the people that follow her too like 1.7 million people have somehow even bought in a little bit to to this what she's what she's teaching and again it's all infused with this conscious or unconscious bias it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because it still hurts the same Mm -hmm. again she's not the problem and I believe that she is in a lot of pain because you can't you can't say things like that and be a person who's living in in joy Mm -hmm. you don't put down people who clean your toilets, <laughs> you know, like I thank my husband is actually the one that cleans our toilets. And I thank him with effusive, like love, praise and gratitude every day because he, cause like I said before, he allows me to do this job and show up for my community and show up in a way that actually like shows up for my family. Like you can't not be in pain. like she's hurting. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of her pain too comes from confusion. She has no idea what she did. That's true. Yeah. And, and I think being in a place of confusion is, is disorienting. And I'm speaking as someone who people can't see me, they're listening, but although I am a biracial woman and my father is black, I present as ambiguous. Like people will say like, are you Israeli? Are you Puerto Rican? Are you like, people don't know what I am. Um, My skin's a little bit darker than some white people's. My hair is like a little less curly than, you know, some of my black sisters. So I walk with a certain level of privilege and I navigate spaces with ease 
that my brothers and sisters, my siblings with darker skin don't have or don't enjoy. So I have also messed up because I was not aware of my own privilege. I've also been called out publicly. I have been dragged for filth. Like I have been like some of it very fair and some of it a little bit unfair, but it doesn't matter because I was at the nexus of it. Like I'm the one that started it. The difference is, is that I had an understanding of what I did. Mm -hmm. So while it hurt, I was able to go, I was able to be open to the criticism and have empathy for the people that I hurt and say, oh, I got to change this. Mm-hmm. And I got to get an education and I actually have to like, shut the F up before I figure this out. But she was like, I woke up this morning. It's like the gift that keeps on giving because it actually drove a lot of traffic to Row House and what we're trying to do in publishing and kind of change this narrative. And we had a lot of people show up and follow and, and, you know, give financial gifts and like, thank you so much for wanting to like, that's action. Like I see something bad and like, I'm going to take direct action to, to be part of the solution. But like, I woke up this morning, I'm like, clearly she could have not said anything else because she already posted these two like terrible, terrible posts. And there was a brand new one up this morning. Like she has learned nothing and she keeps wanting to fix something that she doesn't even understand. And I think this is a lesson for all of us. If we want to be change in the world, if we want to impact in a way that actually heals, we have to have an understanding of the harm we have to have an understanding and going back to why own voices and why we do this and with Row House and why we're part of this movement, we have to have an understanding of the, the people that are being harmed or their stories. Like we have to, we have to have at least a connection some way, even though we haven't lived it. We need to like knowledge is power. I'm wearing a t-shirt right now that says be kind, read books. It's like, it's a very, very easy philosophy. Like don't be shitty and get knowledge. Keep growing, be, be open to learning. Um, so Rachel's like, you know, she's a white lady. That's cool. There's nothing wrong with being white. Adopting whiteness, because there's nothing good about whiteness from the very beginning. Race was developed as a way to subject other people to slavery and, and, and objectification and exploitation. But anyway, you can avoid that. You know, you can just be a person that happens to be white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah, mic drop. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Okay, Rebecca, I have my three safe haven style questions for you. You ready? Are we almost done? I know. I know. <laughs> All right. What's, give, me, give me these surprise questions. I'm excited. What are you most proud of? I'm a really good mom. And I'm most proud of it because I wasn't always. Mm. I was a teen mom that didn't know what the hell she was doing, that tried really hard, messed up a lot about how differently my older three children were raised versus my younger two. But I try real hard and, and I can say now that I'm a good mom. I'm proud of, I'm proud that I, that I saw that I was not a great mom mm. and I fixed it. I love this. What would you like to be known for? Being kind. I love people so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really do. Except I gotta say this, this is a caveat. I love all people. Y'all aren't all invited. Like (laughs) like some of you, I have to keep at an arm's length because you're problematic, but I love you. All right, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. And if you had a message for everyone listening, what would it be? 
It's so important to understand that you are a human being and it is so much more important to be human than to be good. Good is a lie. It keeps us in our lies. It keeps us in our pain. It keeps us trying to be things that we can't be. So just accept that you're human. When you're an asshole, just say, I'm an asshole. Admit your mistakes. Be open about them. Share them with the world. Be naked in front of your neighbor, like figuratively or literally. I don't care. Boobs out. It's all right. <laughs> but just just be human. Stop trying to be good. That's when we get into trouble. Mm-hmm. But also be good. Be good to yes. each other. I've appreciated this and enjoyed this so much. People need to come to see Rojo's Publishing and they need to find you. So where can they find you online? They, okay, so my friends call me Bex, B-E-X, Life, because I talk about my life. Bex Life, it's a tribute to Tupac and Thug Life, but it's just with rainbows and unicorns and butterflies. So find me at Bex Life everywhere. Like for real, my website, my IG, and I will answer your DMs unless you are me. So there you go. I love it. I'll be sure to put all of these, um, all of the links like to Rojas Publishing and to all of this, like in the show notes. So there'll be easy access. Awesome. It was so great talking to you. I really enjoy your Canadian accent. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Oh, Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. Yeah. (laughs) I had a really good time. (laughs) Rebecca, thank you so, so much for joining me on The Safe Haven. Your messages, stories, and perspectives add so much value to the communities that you're creating and are a part of, and I appreciate you so much for bringing them with you into this space. And guess what, everyone? Rebecca and I are sitting down again very soon and are gearing up to share some really exciting things in another episode, so buckle up. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with my platform, and I am committed to creating a safe, brave, and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends, and share it in your Instagram stories. Please be sure to tag us at the Safe Haven Podcast so we can personally thank you for it. If you're able to write a review or leave a juicy five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that really helps this podcast grow. If today is the start of your journey into the depths of anti-racism, learning and unlearning of old ways, be kind to yourself. Try not to feel burdened by shame or guilt. Keep moving, keep growing, keep leading with love, and I will talk to you next week.